Hello, humans. For those of you watching on Patreon, we're just going to keep how I look a secret. I think all of us could pinpoint a moment in our lives that changed us forever. And I imagine if you're anything like me, the first thing you go to is probably not moments in your lives that change you for the better, but the, the hard knocks, the cataclysmic events, the ones that leave scars behind. And everybody has these kind of events. Some of us have harder paths than others, but I think everybody in their own subjective experience knows exactly what I'm talking about right now. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to hell and come back and reemerged. Whenever you're in the middle of these moments, it always feels like you're never going to be okay again. If you're heartbroken that you'll never love again, if you've lost your confidence that you'll never feel like the old you again, there's a bit of truth to that. That I think is scary to admit that there are events that do change you. Nate is somebody who I've known for a couple years now. And when I was thinking about the guests I want to have at the end of the year, it was people who I've loved and enjoyed for a long time and had a personal relationship with and just haven't had them on the show yet. I asked if he could squeeze us in and, and he did. This episode's long and I think it speaks for itself. I think it speaks about what it means to be human and what it means to be somebody who's healing. We're all healing to varying degrees. You may relate to Nate's healing journey or you may not, but I think no matter what, no matter where you come from and what you've been through, if you listen truly for the commonality, you'll hear a lot about what it means to be human. When I think about the most transformational moment in my life, and moment's probably the wrong word, but when I think about the most important fork in the road that I took, which was deciding to get sober, to join a community of other sober people. One of the things that always amazes me is it wasn't therapists who helped change my life. It wasn't professionals. It wasn't doctors. It was a bunch of alcoholics and addicts like me. And while I have gotten a lot of help from therapists and from doctors and from professionals, and I, I love that there are humans that specialize in these things, I think that there's something to be said about just being a regular human trying to reach out and help other humans. And in recovery, what they say is all the things that happen to are exactly what qualifies you to help the people that are going to go through what you've been through. And that's what I've seen Nate Postalweight do in his life and in his community he now coaches, but it really started off just a survivor trying to find and reach out and help up other survivors. He's someone who I have tremendous respect for, both as a friend, as, as a healer, as somebody who is building amazing community. Now, since talking to this episode and getting to hear him in a more professional capacity, because we've always been friends... And it's different to step into a student-teacher role with your friends sometimes, but to, to see what he really does and what he's up to and what the people going through his programs experience a bit of was such a treat. I cried. I cried again on the re-listen when Reese and I were listening to his edit. There's something beautiful about this conversation, and I hope that whoever needs to hear this today gets to hear this today. So if you know somebody who you think this episode would touch on a deep level, please send it to him. And if this episode touches you, let me know. Email me or write a review on iTunes or find a way so I can hear it too. But just want to be sensitive about this. This show does talk about traumatic events that happened to Nate. And it also talks about his incredible journey back into his wholeness. 
and what surviving looks like to him on a daily basis, how he shows up for other people. Thank you so much for making time for us. I love talking to you. I'm honored to do this. We've known each other for at least two years now, right? Probably longer. Yeah, I looked on my Instagram and we met in person two years ago when I was in San Francisco and then followed up last year when I was in a dire emergency and needed to be saved. <laughs> yes, which we, we, which we will get into. This is amazing stuff. Well, I have, I have so much respect for you as a person. I remember when you were first telling me, I'm about to start a new business. I, I am formerly the top real estate salesperson in Denver and I'm leaving that. I'm going to, I'm going to help people. And I remember just like going, oh my gosh, what a, what a gamble. And now you're doing it two years. Mm. You, you've fully transitioned mm -hmm. and I, I'm just impressed both with, with your work and just who you are. I love you, man. Thanks, man. I'm so Thank grateful you. to have you, you as a friend. I love you back. So. I start the podcast the same way every time, which you may or may not know. But Nate, who are you? It's amazing how long I've listened to your podcast and hear you say that. And not once did that cross my mind that you're going to ask me <laughs> that today. Who am I? I am an empathic, misunderstood survivor who is unapologetic about his place in the world. So if we could start, I do like to start with a bit of the, the biography. I think I got it from recovery groups where it's like, Hey, before you can tell us the solution, you got to tell us why, why you even qualify your life has a really hard start. I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if you could talk about how you came into the world as a young person and it just start, you know, when we're talking to our inner children, let's just say, we're having slightly different conversations. Yeah, I wanna set the intention with this space for the people in your community that are gonna hear this, that as we have this conversation, my hope in sharing parts of my story are always to find the people who are navigating life alone and unaware and carrying those circumstances and details that they think oh shit, if someone knew this, it disqualifies me from being loved, held, accepted, or surely I somehow contributed to this horrific thing that happened to me. I want to have these conversations so that those people, no matter where they are, have a pause and are able to start recognizing that there are other people, there are other survivors who are carrying very similar pain. And by being able to recognize one another, that's where so much healing begins and anchors us in the ability to live presently with that pain until we can resolve it. So I always want to set that intention that that's the purpose of us sharing this story is to find the others who need the reminders that they're going to be okay. Thank you. That's beautiful. The beginning was rough. In my early thirties, I was diagnosed with complex PTSD and I didn't understand the magnitude of what that meant. Um, the youngest of seven kids and it grew up in the deep South in central Georgia, Southern Georgia and central Alabama. Gosh, man, just misplaced 
kind of the cards stacked against me. I knew that I was different as a very young child. I didn't have the terminology around gay and what that meant. I didn't have exposure to anything that would identify me. But I think in addition to that, I mean, I grew up being abused as early as three, four years old, just physical abuse that started pretty young of being, I think, a representation of something that didn't fit in this family and it being apparent that I wasn't going to be able to blend in and play the role that was anticipated for that structure to continue moving on the way that it had. I mean, there was physical abuse as early as three and four, and the sexual abuse started when I was about five or six. Me, like so many people, just have these childhoods where we were born into either families or environments or social structures where it just was trauma from day one. And it wasn't like there was this event or this event and that really changed me. It was just, you're born into an environment where everyone's in survival mode and the generational patterns of everyone ahead of you is so shot that the behavior is just being repeated and there's just tremendous abuse nonstop. So I grew up in an environment where survival mode started for me as early as I can remember. And then I think you've got this piece of me that knew the words and terminology I heard around being gay was really destructive. So I was this tender hearted kid who wanted so badly to feel like I had a sense of belonging somewhere and it just, it wasn't safe. And that perpetuated every other act of violence that happened. The sexual abuse went on with different people from five until about 14. Part of being diagnosed with CPTSD many years later was the fact that I didn't even, I didn't know that that was sexual abuse. I didn't know to name that that was a thing called childhood sexual abuse or that I was a survivor. I didn't, I didn't have the terminology. I didn't have the understanding of, of what that meant and spent so many years adapting and normalizing what my body carried in order to survive rather than pause and actually think through what was necessary in order to heal a lot of that trauma. I'll pause there. I'll just say many people, there's a sense that childhood is a bit of paradise. The burdens of the world haven't come on us. And so as we transition into the world, there's a sensation of paradise lost. There is that kind of Garden of Eden story that you were in this walled garden where everything was fine and now you're, you're cast off into the world of work and pain. And with your story, you never have really an Eden. By the time you're five, you don't even quite have a, like, I have very few memories of when I was five. So I'm, I'm, I guess as you're growing up, when do you realize something's wrong? Cause it, it must've taken time. There's no way to, to know everyone else wasn't going through this at that age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's funny you ask that. I was 21 the first time that I told details of stuff that went on specifically around some of the abuse within my home and uh, the look on my friend's face and, and hearing her response, her verbal response is what helped me understand that we aren't all walking around with those circumstances. But I can honestly say before that time, I didn't know. I also think that 
everybody's wired differently. I don't know if it was the empathy, the sensitivity, the vulnerability piece, but I didn't think that I had a right to feel differently about what happened to me. I quickly adapted to what was in front of me and normalized it in order to survive and make do, but I still desperately wanted to belong. And so that was more of the focus for me was a sense of what do I need to do in order to feel that role that would give me a sense of what I thought satisfaction, belonging, that would erase all of the other stuff that had happened. And I think that's the innocence of a child thinking, if there's something that I could do, if there's an action that I can take that validates my abuser's pain, then it will stop them from abusing me. And we don't realize, like, listen, the only reason that abuse happens is because someone's an abuser. It's never because of the person being abused. And yeah, I think that there's a lot of grief in what you're talking about of just recognizing that I'll never know a foundation of what it would have been like to be a safe child then. But I think that's why it's so important that safety and security for me now is such a big deal. Clarity is such a big deal for me. I don't like being confused or uncertain about things. And I've learned to really trust my gut instinct and allow that gut instinct to be the driving force in how I make a lot of decisions that are not in fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, that are truly connected and integrated in a way that's very present. But yeah, when you don't have that Eden that you're talking about, you have to recreate a life that settles you and makes room for understanding how abnormal and destructive that childhood was and adapting to a life where you also can create safety and security for yourself, where living inside of your own mind and body is safe and pleasurable. I want to understand the, the story a bit more as you're going, as you're a little bit older, trying to orient yourself into the world. So as you're in puberty, as you're understanding your sexuality, as you're trying to fit into a, a, a small orthodox community, it, do I have that right? It's, it was a pretty like or, orthodox Christian community. S Southern Baptist, yeah. fundamentalist, evangelical, diehard. Yeah. So I just want to hear a bit of, of your story about fitting in because, because I have my fitting in story and my self-initiation story, which involves total self-destruction through drugs and alcohol and just trying to initiate myself into what I didn't know. Cause the mystery of my story is I had no idea what it meant to be a man. I didn't have a father. My mother was working incredibly hard. So we, you know, like my inner child work is much more nuanced than yours. You know, it's like that. I, I didn't get enough attention because there was no attention. There's not, there's not much that could have gone differently. Unfortunately, given that my mom had to support us. And yeah, I guess I just want to get to know like teenage and young adult Nate a little bit. Yeah. But I do think we are saying the same thing. We're both adapting. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's what you, when you know something is not available, you make sense of what you've got and you, I think, start to suppress longing for more. 
if you know that it's not attainable and you start to let that die down and we start to bury a lot of that longing because I think especially if it's around a sense of belonging, being seen or understood, if we don't have that connection, we begin to bury it because it's so painful to have that raw and keep attempting to survive or connect in, in an environment that's just not going to see us. And so that part starts to die down. When I think of the 12, 13 year old version of myself, that is by far the most traumatic and painful. There's a cluster of three months in there where there was abuse from, I was 12 or 13 when I was um, abused by this man who was almost 40 years old, who was abusing many kids in our community. And, and a lot of that came out later. At that time, I think that because of that abuse, I amped up my hunger and desire at home. I think I wanted so bad to be rescued. I wanted someone to make sense of what was happening. There was no space. Like you were just saying, like there, there was just no space to be rescued or to be seen or for someone to, I shouldn't say there was no space for someone to see that their child was being abused. There just was no access for any involvement of someone to actually see and take action. So entering into puberty, man, you talk about confusing is like the, the verbiage, even with many therapists later on to call my abuser gay. It's like, listen, that has nothing to do with him being a pedophile. I identify him as a pedophile Him being gay was his sexuality and the two have nothing to do with one another. Pedophilia is about control and abuse. So when I think of that young version of me, that was the part of me that was the, the hardest to go back to. It was the hardest to ever reconnect with and think about the things that he saw and the things that he carried for so long, not understanding no 12 year old, no 13 year old should have ever seen or even known that these things existed. I've always been a deeply caring person, someone who is hurting. I can spot pretty clearly and um, want to be nearby and want to make sure that I am accessible in some way to give a word and awareness that, you know, somehow understand. And that was evident as a teenager, like the amount of friends that I had that would reach out and connect over, like I was the safe space for a lot of people to say, this is what's going on inside of my home. I, I'm fascinated when I think back to high school, some of the stories that I heard from friends that I don't think they've probably ever told someone else. That capacity, I think, was even in me as a kid, the hunger and desire to care for people who were hurting. I don't know if that's something that's in your DNA. I don't know how that works, but I remember coming home from Sunday school and when I would hear the prayer request, I would carry them in my body and it would be really stressful that I would share at school during the week and the teacher would write letters to my parents saying he's telling other kids about like this stuff that's happening at Sunday school about this person's grandmother and this kid's parents divorce. Like I've always been, you know, wired like that. So I think that the amount of pain started shaping this person who found a lot of resolve with other people who were hurting. But I would say that and humor were kind of my avenues of existing as a teenager. And as you move through the world, 
When do you become a real estate agent? Is that pretty early on? Is that as you're getting out of high school or? We grew up poor and I had a very strong work ethic really young. I started working full time when I was 14 years old and um, got a work permit when I was 15. My junior and senior year of high school, I got out of school at 12 o'clock every day in a co-op program to work full time and then bought my first business when I was 19. I think that that was just a drive of not having access to a lot of some of the basics. I paid for my own food, you know, when I was a teenager in my own clothes and, and you start to realize like, this is how you make your way in the world. And so bought my first business at 19. And for me, success has just been a great place to hide, but also an investment away from not knowing how to tackle a lot of the chaos that went on inside of me. And I think that's true for a lot of people. I think that success can be a powerful thing when it's driven by a desire to grow and make changes. I think for me, it was, this is an alibi for not being able to attain a life that you really want. And this is your alibi as to why the success is such an important part of that narrative. I see it as such a classic, like this story is thousands of years old, right? Is to feel the call to a challenge, to reach the summit and to realize that you're on the wrong mountain, you know? And so to, yeah. to be at the top of the Denver, Colorado real estate, to be making millions and selling lots of homes and to, to realize, oh crap, like this summit is not where I rest. You know, this is, this is not where the end is where uh, yeah, a lot of people will view what they're aiming at. Right. I, my mom and I, we call this the great palace lie. And it's like, if I just made it there, if I just published that book, if I just read every day, if I just worked out every day, if I just made a lot of money, if I was just at the top of the hierarchy in the Denver real estate world, then I could be blank. And I think you're very fortunate that you got to to get there early and on early on enough to look around and realize this isn't the tree that I rest at. When do you realize that you're on a, a healing journey? When do you realize that this is your work? Man, I, I honestly think that like in my late teens, I was a missionary for a while. The experience that I had there was just a recognition of like, Hey, you have the ability to somehow speak about pain in a way that helps other people. And that's something that could really be beneficial. And that collided with the, the business mindset and I focused on, on business. I wasn't a successful realtor for years and years. It was a build. I was in real estate for 13 years and I was a part owner in Nashville. And then I took a consulting gig in San Diego and then moved to Denver and built this thing from the ground up. And it happened quickly and it was amazing. But the year that I did become the number one broker for my brokerage and had just, I had always done really well in real estate, but it was like the other level. That's when it, there was this, there was a, a long chain of events though. I mean, there was like a nervous breakdown in my early thirties and realizing like, I can't physically keep going at the pace that I'm going and survive. And then I was rebuilding my life here after a lot of that. And then the process of 
I didn't come out until I was 38, almost 39 years old. Wow. That unveiled so much for me where all of a sudden the scales were lifted off my eyes and I was looking around saying, holy shit, I've missed out on so much because of these beliefs and because of these things that I was taught as a kid and because of this really fucked up therapy that I participated in through all of my twenties that told me you're not allowed to be gay. And it's a result of being abused. Like all of this really sick, stupid, uneducated stuff that has no grounding evidence, but it's just being projected on innocent people. So I come out a month before I turned 39. A year later is my 40th birthday. We had this beautiful, exciting, fun weekend with friends that came in from out of town. And it was just a full weekend of just a lot of fun. The end of that weekend, it was just a, a level of loneliness of just like, I don't know what else I have to look forward to. Like I've come out. I don't talk about the grief that comes with that. Like the grief of recognizing I can't recapture my twenties and thirties that were spent to a really fucked up mindset around religion while I had all of this trauma inside of my body. So it was like this double whammy of pain and then looking and saying, now that I've made this decision, my body feels differently. My face looks different in pictures when I smile because of a freedom. And it just felt like success was the only thing that I had. And that was a horrible feeling because I wanted so much more. I started this process that just grew. Like the first idea was I'm going to travel for a year, take a sabbatical. That's a classic just, one. Yeah. See, <laughs> see what that's like. I'll keep my loft and I will just rent that out or have friends look after it for a year and then I'll come back and whatever. And then that turned into, I don't think I want to have a home while I'm traveling. I think I need to rip that route up. I'm one of these people who like, if you shared the big vision with me about something, I'll never get it. If you give me a little bitty detail, I'll buy into that. But it's like, I feel like the universe was protecting me of just like, this guy has no idea what I'm convincing him to do, <laughs> but I'm removing like one piece of security at a time. So I sold my home to a friend. It worked out really well. And then I rented this apartment and then was like, gosh, I can't believe that I'm leaving next year to travel for a year. And then. The moment I started writing, because that has been just something I've done since I was a teenager, something started to come alive. And finally around March or April, I had a conversation with a friend and she said, Hey, I think that your time here in Denver is done. And I was crushed when she said that I was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm coming back here in a year. And she was like, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's true. You're going to see the world. And you're going to have a different outlook. And uh, man, I tell you, that conversation changed my life. The next night I was folding laundry, bawling my eyes out thinking, yeah, I don't think that I can have a plan to come back here. Then a month later was when I finally made the decision of you have to say goodbye to real estate. You have to draw a line in the sand that says, I don't even understand what my next career move is. But I know that I've done this for 13 years and I know that I've, I've maxed out my potential. And that that's amazing. And I also know that I'm probably going to have a heart attack within the next decade. I'm probably going to have really high blood pressure and always struggle with any type of balance. 
it was more than just walking away from a career. It was stepping into, you got to see what else is available to you. You have to step outside of this thing that provides you a sense of comfort, but also is a shield from a lot of pain that you're carrying. And thus the journey began. Amazing. I do want to backfill one area real quick. I didn't realize that the fucked up therapy and healing follows you into your 20s. Can you cover that just real quick? Yeah, from 18 to 31, I was in abusive evangelical therapy. I was being told every week that my sexuality was a sin and that was something to repent of and that if I could just restore the relationship with my father, that my desire to be romantic with another man would go away. It's just so stupid. And this is led by, so by ministers or by? Yeah, this isn't, what I'm telling you is not uncommon. Like this is, yeah. I mean, it is, it, there are still so many people who identify as Christian therapists. And it's just, it's so ironic because when you're talking about trauma, that has nothing to do with religion at all. Like trauma is about the nervous system in the brain and the body. Yeah. At 18, I, I had a very unfortunate experience of who I reached out to first and they put me on a trajectory of this is what you need to do. I've said this on interviews before. The thing that makes me the most angry is that I spent all of that time earnestly divulging what I knew to heal. And all I experienced for those 13 years was being re-traumatized by people who are painfully ignorant and should never have access to someone who's traumatized. It was always about more Bible verses or understanding the heart of God and all these things. And listen, if that's what you grow up understanding, if that's part of your identity, that's going to make you belong and fit in that puzzle, you're willing to do whatever it takes. And for me, the big transition came in my early thirties when I had the nervous breakdown, it was just like my body went one direction, my brain went the other. And they were both like saying, I don't even recognize you see you later and that suffering i know you know part of that like that mental anguish of not understanding why the fog and the intensity is so painful and is that our new normal is this what it's always going to be that was the big transition for me was at around 30 31 going to an outpatient center and getting appropriate mental health help and understanding that what I should have been addressing that 13 years was childhood trauma, not my sexuality, that, oh, I can't tell you the anger that comes with that, the, the, the un time wasted. Yeah. The unfairness of you doing the therapeutic work of digging deep and divulging and sharing and it landing uh, it, it, in the wrong, irresponsible, dangerous laps of these, yeah. of these people who were not even informed of trauma is just heart-wrenching. I mean, it, yeah. it just makes you want to, I, I want to go burn the place down. <laughs> I can give you the address. Okay, please do. Of course, I would never advocate burning the place down on radio. My lawyers are telling me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just heart-wrenching. And, and so when you, when you land in the right place, there's got to be a, 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 like, how do you even trust again? How do you find trust? Because I, I know you as somebody who is capable of such deep friendship, you've reached out to me in my dark times. You have stayed connected when I couldn't stay connected. Like I know you as somebody who can trust, who, who has these really, these abilities to have incredibly 
healthy, at least friendships, which is a, you know, which does require a lot of skill. I had to learn how to be a friend as an adult because I spent, you know, my youth just being obliterated and to learn how to be a healthy friend is, I'm so fucking proud of you, Nate. That's all it comes down to. I am so proud of who you, like, I only know you as the adult man that you are today and and thinking about you in your thirties, having to take this step of trusting a, another professional and you don't know. Tell, tell me about, I want to know all about this journey because as humans, we're all on a healing journey of sorts. We all have different, maybe varying degrees of what that healing entails. I want to know all about this. I want to know everything. I was, they took such good care of me. When I entered that outpatient center, the care was in the right hands. It's almost impossible to feel threatened. There's a way to care and hold people where someone who's traumatized knows and recognizes I can exhale. here. So I feel really fortunate that where I went, the way everything was handled was really beautiful and really delicate. And I had also never seen the, like all of the therapists I'd ever seen were all labeled Christian counselors. And a lot of them weren't licensed. They had degrees in therapy and masters in theology, and it just has nothing to do with trauma at all. And so when I, when my therapist gave me her card, when I checked in, she had all these credentials that I'd never seen or heard of, <laughs> like LMFT, EMDR, somatic, like it said all these words. And I was like, is she, is she going to do this stuff to me? Like, do, do I become this? Like, what, what does this mean? I, that's how naive I was. I was hurting so bad that there wasn't room to be cautious about whether or not it was going to work. I was in so much pain that it was life or death. Gosh, they burst the bubble of pain that I had lived in for so many months. This is one of the things that I want to make sure that your audience hears. In December, the breakdown happens. From December to October, I was at times sleeping two hours a night, waking up screaming from night terrors. I was insanely depressed. I gained 50 pounds. I walked away from a business that I owned and cashed out my partnership. I closed the curtains to my home. My anxiety was so bad that I could only grocery shop at night where there were less people. That therapist on a weekly basis offered more Bible verses and more stuff about God. That was so fucking dangerous. That was life or death. And any therapist should have recognized this person needs help that I don't even know how to offer them, but the audacity to suggest, and I was doing it. I was trying to memorize Bible verses with this rattled nervous system. I was going home every night, beating myself up that I have not done enough for God to heal this thing in me. That's the environment that I grew up in. This was the conditioning of understanding at some point, this God is going to finally flip the switch and make you heterosexual, make you feel whole. Like all of the stuff was jumbled in this category where I was responsible and had not done enough. That's just so sick. Like it, it's just so wrong. It's so, it's so dangerous. Like to think that someone is that ignorant that they think that Bible verses are appropriate to tell someone who's got complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Like it's just, it's, it's baffling. When I look back now, that was the turning point for me of just like, holy shit, I can find relief. There is relief 
from this pain. And it's talking about these things that I've carried all my life. My therapist there expressed concern for the type of therapy that I was in. She, I didn't have a, or he helped you get out. She said that she didn't think that that was a lot of it was appropriate. She didn't quite understand the role, you know, that my therapist was playing. And I just didn't quite understand her at that moment to, to be able to understand, well, this is all I've ever known. I have seen this therapy for like this therapist for six, seven years. Yeah. And it took a while to understand exactly, you know, what she was saying and, and what that meant. That was a huge turning point to understand mental health, to be labeled with a disorder that helped me a lot to understand this is what CPTSD looks like. This is what, this is how it manifests itself. This is what the symptoms are. It just makes you feel validated that this is not because you're a shitty person who's not read the Bible enough or memorized the verses correctly. This is a very real thing that's about your body and your nervous system. That is so right. My mom and I are hosting an event this month. One of the deals is it's for people starting over. And so one of the deals is, hey, if you can't afford the event, write us. Okay. Nobody's getting turned away. And so I'm getting all these emails of people and their life story. And there's such a tone of, of apology to it. And there's such a tone of like, I'm sorry, I screwed up. So I can't afford the ticket price of the event. I didn't ask for any reason, but I happened to get them. And I love people. I love stories. I even love hard stories. You know, I just, the whole point of this show is the human experience, all of it. And so for whatever reason, I can read the extreme ends of the human spectrum. It doesn't cling with me. I just read it and I just go, oh my God, anybody in your situation, nobody in your situation would be doing better than you. Like one of the things that drives me crazy is it is so easy to be quote unquote spiritual or to be well in the monastery. You you see this when you send people to rehab or when you send people to a retreat where there's a lot of structure and there's not a lot of unpredictable chaos. So when I see people who are, have a healthy income, have a healthy life and have everything, and they're kind of talking about like, well, you could just do what I do. I'm like, I could put almost anybody, you know, granted there's some mental health stuff that would need professional care, but I could put a lot of regular people who are struggling right now in your situation and they'd adapt fine, believe me, (laughs) you know? So when I look for the spiritual giants, when I look for the people that have something to teach, I'm looking for the mom of four who manages to take great care of her kids and put food on the table and support. Like that's where you see the work being done. You know, when you see somebody in traffic, just something totally unfair happens. Some asshole cuts them off and you see them just go, all right, you know, okay, that's a spiritual giant. Cause I've seen a lot of people who've done a lot of spiritual work really struggle when life gets hard, <laughs> when they're getting divorced or when they're getting blank, you see the humanity pop back up and you go, man, this, this persona that you've had that you've somehow risen above is not totally true. It's just really easy to be spiritual in the monastery. Think about how often religion does that, teaches you to idolize a specific person because they are anointed. Yeah. How does anointing work? I don't, I don't know how enlightenment works either. (laughs) Yeah. Like tell me how a human being has access to something that requires other people to worship them for. Like stop that. Yeah. Stop that. That's so messed up. I would be very weary of any human who claims to be the gatekeeper of any God. 
Yep. I, I encourage people to discover spirituality, to find a higher power that they love. I encourage it. I think that there's almost something cooked into the, the human that appreciates the forces greater than ourselves. And that could be gravity or that could be the sun. You know, the sun is a God of sorts. I really just want to caution people that claim to have it. One of the things that I appreciate the most, it was um, a conversation with Peter Rollins. He gave me this coin afterwards, right? He's got this kind of deconstructionist Christian thing going on. And the coin says, there is no solution. There is no solution. <laughs> there is no solution because this whole deconstruction is stop buying the salvation story that you, you are a human. The human condition is that you are looking for a solution to your humanity. I'm not saying to specific things that do have solutions, but if you're looking for an overall solution, the, the burden of consciousness, the burden of humanity, which is both great and bad, you are in for a treat because there's no mud water won't make you that person. I don't know if you know that product, but I like to tease them because their name sucks. Mud water won't make that make you that person. A morning shake every day won't make you that person. Reading won't make you that person. You are going to be you, human, flawed, imperfect being until the day you die. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't search and that you shouldn't enjoy the journey of growing, of learning how to be in better relations to other humans and how to help those who aren't as strong as you or how to improve your own strength so then you can be useful to people who aren't as strong as you. I, I encourage all of that. But if you're looking for some kind of uh, summit to reach where you're now above all that, think again. I think too, if you think about people who feel their way is the only way danger that is deep rooted insecurity i could ask this a lot where people say do you think everybody has to do inner child work no no i think it's beautiful and it's valuable but to even suggest that everybody resonates with inner child work is so inappropriate i i did emdr for years i did hundreds of hours of emdr emdr has been really damaging to people both of those statements are true. It saved my life and it's hurt other people. And it could be because of the practitioner or it could have been that that particular modality is not the right thing for that person. But anytime someone feels like it has to be done this way and it applies to all humanity, it's really missing how beautiful and intricately an individual were each made. And I think, I think I was really ignorant to a lot of that even a few years ago of recognizing that what works for some people is just, it's just not going to work for all. But any mindset that says my way is the way is deeply, deeply insecure and red flag. Danger for sure. Danger, Will Robinson. I want to have something in the conversation that does talk about the modalities, that does talk about your journey specifically, whether through, you know, classic psychoanalytic talk therapy to EMDR to more somatic work to, I want to capture these things. So if somebody is now kind of like, I have no idea what's out there, you could tell them your, your journey of discovering what was out there, what worked for you, what didn't work for you, how you could see it maybe working for someone else. Just little micro blasts of, of the things that you had to discover the hard way. My community is so beautiful on social media. Over the holidays, my goal is to write a guide called How to Start Trauma Therapy and just put as much information as I can in there about the relationship with your therapist, different modalities and expectations around therapy that really hopefully centers and anchors an individual away from 
the raw vulnerability that says I have to throw myself at my therapist and whatever they say goes more into this is a paid professional. You should always feel safe. You should always feel secure. You should always leave that office feeling like you have a purpose and an understanding about what just happened. And a, um, and a license, it doesn't guarantee that they're ever great. Ever. Uh, I think the most important piece for finding a therapist is that they have done their own work. I think that people that need, there are so many therapists on social media that I read their work and I'm like, who the fuck are you talking to? And why are you so mad at them? Like what, <laughs> who, who is ever going to reach out to you and be like, I'd like to talk to you about my trauma. Thank you for call, telling me what a piece of shit I am for thinking or attempting to process something a certain way. Please tell me more. It's just, it's so bizarre. I love your work about finding a therapist. So you, that's just going to be a written piece. That's already a written piece. Yeah. So my guide that I wrote was 11 pages and it's helped a lot of people. If you want to find me, you can just go to natewrites.com and that'll direct you to everything else. But the modalities that were most beneficial to me were EMDR. And even with EMDR, I would have to tell my therapist. EMDR is rapid eye movement. It sounds weird, but it's clinically looking like it's pretty effective. Yeah, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. So I love being able to explain it from layman's terms. When something traumatic happens, you have left brain, right brain. The trauma goes on one side of the brain. For us to have a fully developed experience with something, it has to move from left brain to right brain. Childhood trauma happens. It goes to one part of the brain and it's stuck there. We spend our lives attempting to say, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to remember that. I don't want to feel the emotions that come with that. So it's stuck in that one piece. What we don't realize is because it's there, it's shaping the way that we have relationships, the way that we navigate the world. EMDR with the eye movement goes in and helps you talk through memories, taps into that stuck memory and brings it full circle. So instead of it being just thought of from one side of the brain, it's activated where it then goes back and forth and back and forth. I have had unbelievable success with the exhale of, oh my God, that is why I thought because of this experience, then you're approaching it from an adult standpoint. You're able to say, that's not what that means. But the thing is, is your brain is now working with you and you're, you're able to feel the relief from it. So I'm a huge advocate for EMDR. I had just so much physical and um, sexual trauma that any type of touch in any type of therapy is just not for me. There's just no environment where I'm ever going to feel safe in a therapeutic sense where someone is having access to my body in any way. And, and even at EMDR, I had to tell my guy when he would roll up and he's doing the movement to back up. I always felt <laughs> like he was, you know, he was too close. <laughs> yeah. But for me, I, I would highly recommend that. And, and in the guide, one of the things that I'm going to put is like EMDR is not something you do on the second or third session with a therapist. You have to build a foundation where you're both on the same page about the experience. So the practitioner knows this is very volatile for them. This is very vulnerable for them. This is scary for them. So as they're helping them reprocess that pain, they're aware of uh, what's been done. I had a client recently who their therapist dove into EMDR on the second session. And I personally don't think that that's wise. I don't think that you can do any trauma modality without an extensive understanding of the person's background. And that's laying groundwork with them where they feel really safe. And it's not this 
angsty pull of just like, well, my therapist wants me to do this and I don't want to, but if they're saying that's, that's not the way to enter a trauma modality. It's just, it's just not. Real quick, I want to make sure that people who want to see this publication that you're putting together get it. Is that a newsletter we can follow to get it when you write it? If you go to natewrites.com, okay. I've got an 11-page inner child journaling guide that's very extensive. I'm trying to have as many free resources as possible for other survivors. And there's a way to get a newsletter one. or subscribe to that? Yeah. Cool. We'll, we'll yeah, get I'm on that too. With the follow-up. I can't wait yeah. to follow up with that too when it's out. We'll, we'll put yeah. a note on this episode. Great. As you're going through the types of therapy, what have you learned in the process? Because I have had many different therapists and I have run from therapists before when I got the heebie-jeebies, when I kind of sensed something wasn't right. How have you discovered is the best way to, let's say, audition your healers, your therapists, your guides? Is there a way that you have found to check references to, because it's such a kind of weird, mysterious world, right? Like yeah. most therapists have a really generic website where they all do the same thing. I specialize in addiction and family relations and adolescent recovery and PTSD. But you, the the difference between somebody who has spent the last 10 years exclusively diving deep into working with people with trauma and somebody who got their degree 20 years ago and maybe has one or two clients along with just regular people. I imagine you must have gathered more skills than I have of auditioning these people that you're going to entrust in your life. Psychology today, their filters are pretty great. You can search by zip code, by sex, by modality. When you're looking for trauma therapy and someone talks about in their bio, trauma, trauma, trauma. But then you look at modalities listed and they don't have an actual modality listed that they're trained in, which would be EMDR, IFS, somatic experiencing. There's a conflict there. That means that they are a talk therapist and being in talk therapy and just talking about your trauma for a year or two years can be extremely re-traumatizing to someone. They're just reliving it and not moving it. The purpose of a modality is to transform the way that that trauma shows up in your body, to be present with it, to engage with it. And there's so many different things that work for different people. But I feel like what happens is so many people find a therapist who keeps saying trauma, 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 and then they go see that therapist for two years and they're like, yeah, I like my therapist, but I don't feel any different. If anything, I feel like my anxiety has risen. Well, it's because you're going and talking about these really horrific memories every week without a plan to move it out of your body. That's the main thing that I would recommend to anyone who's looking to understand trauma. Talk therapy has to be done to lay the foundation before trauma work is done, before using a, a modality. But ongoing talk therapy can be really damaging to someone who has a lot of trauma without an intent to, to move it. Yeah, and a therapist's curiosity to have the whole picture cannot get in the way of the actual work. I listened to a great talk by somebody who said like, hey, as a therapist, you don't need every nitty gritty detail. Do not let your curiosity overtake the process you're in right now. Get what you need and keep keep the ball moving. Because Agreed. as humans, of course, you want to know the story, but that's not necessarily helpful. Right. It's like, right. I think sometimes we don't really... The, the therapist is not understanding the impact of this. If this person has lived with the story for 20 years and they've never said it out loud to anyone, that is sacred. 
Yeah. That is insanely sacred. And that space needs to be held so clearly acknowledge that piece first while holding them through that, not physically, but just emotionally and mentally holding that space with them in a way where they feel deeply respected for showing up that way. Yeah. I had a, a therapist one time who almost every session I left, I left like I was split wide open. Like I had just gotten suplexed outside the office and just woke up from a like trauma and I was unemployable the rest of the day. I literally had to build my schedule so I didn't have anything after. And it wasn't until seeing a couple other people's style that I felt, oh, this doesn't actually have to be that way. Like I'm, I'm personally in my own healing journey, I'm down for intensives and, and things that do require a lot of kind of post-processing of what happened. But to me on a weekly basis, for a long time and for that to be what we're going to do kind of unexplained is not for me. If somebody's going to do surgery on me, I want to know what the procedure is going to be and I want to know what to expect afterwards. I, I have a torn uh, rotator cuff. I am scheduled for surgery. I'm not sure if I'm going to get it. I'm hoping physical therapy works and stuff. But when you do a therapy, they tell you how long you're expected to be feeling it afterwards, they tell you exactly what the procedure is going to be. That same level of care should be given with anything psychological. That same level of care of, hey, listen, we're going to do this. You're probably not going to want to be doing work or, or anything like that for the next couple of days. You know, let's let's clear this out. Or that explanation, like what you were saying, you don't do do well with ambiguity, which is really a blessing because a lot of us put up with too much ambiguity. Yeah, We might be embarrassed to ask the follow-up questions or not know the answers. It's like Brene Brown says, clear is kind. Be clear with me. Tell me exactly what you want of me, what I should expect afterwards. Right? Agreed. Agreed. I do want to say that no person should leave therapy sessions feeling split wide open. You just shouldn't. One of the things I'll put in the guide that I do in my, my private coaching is we stop the session five minutes before for the person to check out and leave whatever they need to leave in that space so they can reintegrate back into their day. We don't need to walk around with those wounds all day. We need to feel mended and cared for in that space. And there's a way to do it. There's going to be therapy sessions where you leave and your grief is intense and you're madder than normal, or you've tapped into something and that's normal, but leaving every week feeling split wide open, that's not helpful. That there's, there's, there's gotta be resolve. And I do this practice with myself and I teach my clients this work with the part of you that's hurting in a space and tell them you don't need to be here. And, and what that looks like is being able to say to that Sam who felt split wide open, Hey, I want you to stay in that room and nap. I'm headed back to work, but you stay there. You find your resolve and you rest. I'm headed back. I have to do that for myself where I just can't take certain things with me that my body has experienced into the rest of my day. Yeah. So tell us about the coaching that you've done, the inner child work. I do want to mention real quick, my favorite thing of yours that you do is inner child chat, inner underscore yeah. child underscore chat. And I am off social media pretty much. I will, I'll post some kind of updates of things I think people should know. That is such a beautiful project. And I hope that continues to grow. I'll, I'll, it's, 
people send in a photo of their younger selves with a message to themselves. And it's a photo with the message overlaid on it. God, I, I, it's just such a beautiful project. And I, I hope it becomes an app or becomes a email I can get one day as I personally divorce from Facebook properties, because that is magic. That is something so beautiful for, for people to, to share. Thank you. I think that for them to see the picture of themselves as a child and the message that they needed most, but then also to get uh, feedback from other people who are saying, I understand your pain. Do you know, like out of the hundreds of submissions, I've only had one person who sent like an inappropriate message to their child. And I coached them and helped them understand like, hey, you know, you might want to think about it this way because the child can't go do anything different. The experience has been, has already happened. I wish I had the time with inner child chats. I, I, I haven't posted on there in months and I feel horrible about that because it's such a beautiful community, but it's so time consuming and I'm trying to figure out how to uh, at least get three or four of those stories told a week because it is, it's so beautiful. It really is powerful, but it's the story, but then also the person hearing all these strangers say, thank you for sharing your story. This is so beautiful and I'm cheering you on. It's really powerful. Yeah. I actually, I brought a picture of myself for anyone listening. I'll describe this photo a bit. It's me. I'm not nine. I like connecting with nine-year-old self, but this is me. Maybe when I was like five or six, I have a good tower of those kitty Legos, those big mega bricks going and a lid to a Lego box on my head. And I'm just staring off and there's an expression on my face that's just trusting and happy and confident most of the ideals i try to be as an adult in my life today i look and i, I see reflected back to me in this photo there's something about this photo that just touches me this young sam is who i meditate in front of and thanks to some of these conversations i realized this was a conversation i wanted to start opening and start connecting with this, this guy. I didn't have any formal training or anything. It was a very intuitive process. It has been profound. Uh, and mm -hmm. this reconnecting with younger parts of yourself as an adult is so incredible. I would love to hear about the, the work you do and the, the containers that you do, but I will also read a message that I wrote to this, this young guy. And you can tell me if you would coach me if this was inappropriate, but I'll read what, you, what I got. Dear nine-year-old me, I want you to know there is nothing to worry about. Well, sort of. In the next 20 years, all of your greatest fears will come true. You will lose your friends, lose your job, lose yourself, have your heart shattered, make too many terrible decisions to list, hint, maybe don't try amphetamines. You become afraid and weak. You run away. You hide. You are brought to your absolute breaking point multiple times, and it catches you off guard every time. That is not the end, though, because you never give up when it feels like the end. You keep going. You persevere. You learn how to keep at it. Keep trying. You get really good at crawling when you're too weak to walk. You become strong. You become brave. You become capable of making tough choices. And you trust and believe in yourself, mostly. You become a good friend, a good parent, and a sanctuary for yourself. You become the champion of your own life. I am not exaggerating. You become a fucking hero. I love that. That's just raw and beautiful. There's different ways to look at inner child work. And I think that 
the way you're writing that you're, you're using the nine-year-old self to say, I'm integrating into my whole self now in the midst of how your nine-year-old self shows up in your world today, that's where the communication is a little different, where it's recognizing any wound that I had at that age, that version of me does not have the capacity to navigate my world. I am carry. Is there a nine-year-old Sam walking around? No, but there are his memories and his pain living in this body. And it's learning to say, why am I having a reaction that I'm having a difficult time making sense of? Well, because you've got a subconscious part of you that has very real pain and is triggered by things that they can't make sense of. So if you can think of something that that nine-year-old was experiencing at that time, what, what, what would you say when you think of the nine-year-old his greatest pain at that time was well so i was always a worried and nervous kid that would manifest in i was always prepared and terrified that somebody would break into our house because there wasn't a father and my mother is no physical threat let's just say you know i'd be like mom what's going to happen if somebody breaks in and she'd say i have a tennis racket and i go oh mom that's a terrible weapon so i'd like hide knives and stuff i was prepared almost like a home alone except i wanted to kill anybody that was a threat. I was worried about threats. But the reason why I connect with this six, uh, well, six a little young for what I'm talking about, but that, that nine-year-old self, it wasn't that that nine-year-old self was holding so much trauma because the, the trauma for me, Nate, comes a little bit later. It comes when my intelligence and my capability start becoming challenging to the adults in my life. And so that nine-year-old knew about it. He had a deep knowledge of who he was. If you had asked nine-year-old me, are you strong? Are you capable? I'd say, yeah, of course. There was a ability to take on problems from a very kind of grounded place that there is a solution. You are strong. You are capable. You are smart. You can solve this. You know, you can solve this problem. And what happened is as I became a teenager, I let people convince me not even a teenager, but just a young man, you know, I didn't understand that you, nece you shouldn't necessarily share all of your thoughts or opinions with people because they might not appreciate them, you know, and I always wanted to show people how smart I was. And that was very annoying for authority figures. It often challenged their authority or undermined their authority if I, because I, I didn't know what was happening. And I let a lot of people convince me both in therapeutic programs, you know, cause I got into drugs and I was in my first therapeutic program when I was 15. And those types of programs, when you're a quote unquote problem child and they're the solution, their goal is to make you tolerable to your parents and tolerable to their group therapy. It's not to make sure that you come out the other end of this, a, a fully formed human. Like I went to behavior mod programs. I, I, I went to these things to try and they were trying to help me with, with my escapism, with my addiction. But in the end, the client was my mom, right? I'm not paying these people to be my professionals. These people are being hired by an outside source to make me tolerable. And so I let a lot of people hinder me, make me second guess myself, 
make me just a little bit further from that spirit of kind of who I am. I am somebody who wants to take risks and get knocked on the head and learn from them, but I want to learn somatically. I want to learn in my, in my hands and my fingers. And this, this podcast has been an experience of learning out loud. If you've listened to the podcast from the start, you have heard me screw up so many times. I have multiple nervous breakdowns, have long periods of retreat. I'm not pretending to have it all together, but I think when I look at this, this younger version of myself, it's not to connect with a, a, a pain that he felt. He had some pain. There was the pain of wishing I had more mom time, wishing my mom had been more of like, you know, the other moms in Marin who are driving their kids to sports and, you know, kind of being like their, their helper. And my mom had a very different approach where it was kind of like, yeah, go, you know, here's five bucks, go loiter in town and figure it out. So there is pain, but yeah, the reason why I I meditate with this guy might be a little different than the photo I could have brought for us to do more classically what you're up to, but it's because he knew something true about the world that I want to reconnect with. He knew that you could make mistakes and learn from them rather than if you make a mistake, your whole world will be over and you'll never recover. And if you post this graphic that's imperfect on social media, then everybody's going to, you know, there was like a, there was a trust he had with the world that I let get broken. Your language is interesting because I don't think that you let them convince you to not trust yourself. And I don't think you let it get broken. I think that that is what happens when you're vulnerable and you don't have the understanding at that time of what's happening. But I want to ask the, when you talk about that nine-year-old and you said that he was hypervigilant around, you know, having like hiding knives and things like that. Had you been in an experience before where you didn't feel safe? I don't know. So there's, there's pretty big gaps in my memories. It's pretty massive gaps. And, and those could be from the amount of abuse I've done to my own brain. Right. I, my, my poor brain through drugs and alcohol, daily intoxicants for a decade could have done it. There was a, a time where I really wanted to prove myself physicality and I wanted to be dangerous and I wanted to be a good fighter. And so I fought and I competed and I trained and I took a lot of blows to the head. And I have showed up to social situations and been like, yeah, punch me in the head, man. Try to knock me out. You know, there's a really kind of backwards way of, of finding my strength, but that is what it took. And I think there is a fear there too, because like you waited until you were, I think 38, I I couldn't say a negative word about my upbringing or my mother until I was 30. I know I I could listen to the podcast, I think, and, and find that point when it is allowed to be changed. But it's because my mom was all I had and my dad didn't want to be in my life. It was like, I needed her, I needed her to be to be that infallible person. I, I needed her to be perfect, which is totally unfair in a way to make any human perfect because you're not allow, you're not allowing room for their humanity. But it, it wasn't until very recently, in the last two years maybe, that I could confidently say like, 
yeah, you know what? I'm going to be doing things very differently than my mom did. And it's not because my mom's a bad person, but it is just because I think we, a lot of us can learn from our parents' mistakes. And so there's, there's chunks that chunks of time that I, I guess to answer your question that I don't have great access to yet. Maybe I will one day, maybe that's part of the healing journey, but I don't know where that, that, that primal fear that, because it, it was, it was real as a child. There was a, a real calculation that, that you are 65 pounds and frail and your mother is 120 pounds and frail. And whoever comes through that door will be 190 pounds and not frail. Where are you going to strike? It was very meticulous. It was not LARPing by any chance. It was, it was full on prepping, <laughs> you know, like preppers prep for the, for the apocalypse. There are, there are people who take that real and they are, they are running the calculation. And, and I don't know where that came from. I'm pretty physically capable. I've done Brazilian jiu-jitsu and Muay Thai and been a wrestler. And I'm, I'm physically confident in my abilities to defend myself or at least be able to escape safely. And I still feel frail. I mentioned this in the last episode. When I'm with somebody my exact size, somehow they're taller than me. When I'm with somebody who is exactly my size, they're somehow, they somehow occupy more space. So there was this always being frail, always being vulnerable, always being weak. And there could be something that triggered that, but I don't currently have access to it. I want to just share this feedback with you about what I'm picking up on and I could very much be off, but the language you use is really interesting because when you say my dad didn't want to be a part of my life, so I needed my mom to be perfect, that feels a little gaslighty to me. I think that that narrative could really be expanded in a way that shows a lot of compassion and really includes the parts of you that may be hurt. And that could be as a child, there was no way for me to process the pain of my dad not wanting to be a part of my life. And then I felt like I wanted more from my mom that was not available. And I resented myself for that. It sounds like you are still controlling or containing a level of grief or hurt there that would give the younger version of you permission to just say, it's okay if you didn't like the way that things were. It's really okay if you didn't have the ability to process the way that things worked around you. And it just sounds like you've taken parts of that and retrained that narrative in a way that doesn't quite land. Yeah. And I, I want you to explain the, the difference in this statement because it's a subtle difference with seemingly a big impact, right? Yeah, so it's like, a different responsibility statement. So. Help me, under, help me understand the difference. You're a father. You're 32? Yeah. Okay. So you're able to use language around an appropriate emotion of how things would be in your life now. If you could take off the glasses, the lens of how you see your life at 32 and how you saw your life as a child and step into nine-year-old Sam's view put his glasses on 
I don't think it's fair to say that he expected his mom to be perfect. I think it's fair to say I am hurting so bad because there's not words around my dad not wanting to be a part of my life. And I want more and I don't know how to get it. Yeah. Well, I'm crying now, so I think there's some truth to that. Do you see the difference? Yeah, I I, I feel the resistance to it. And uh, yeah. I know that's something kind of clinging on. That Yeah. So if you can think, I don't want to put my narrative, my strength at 32 on how I see things and how I've toughened up. I don't want to put that on a nine-year-old. I want to put on his view so that I can safely guide him to me where the full story is told. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Sam offering him language and freedom to be honest about how much he was hurting is going to help you see the way he shows up in your life now. But I think if the framework is telling him that he expected too much as a kid, it's going to leave him stuck. And the way he's going to show up is going to be rigid in certain places because he's just trying to survive. He's just looking for a place to say, does anybody see how confused I am? I, I would give anything to know how to adapt to this. I simply don't know how. And it's not because you, Sam, needed more. It's because you, Sam, were nine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was really a, graceful. That was really beautiful. It's amazing these messages that we have about ourselves. And it's, it's translating the power from, at 32, for me to expect my nine-year-old self to see things the way that I see is really unfair to him. He's nine. He's nine. If I want him to see things my way, I have to see them his way. I have to enter back in and be honest about what hurt him, what scared him, what his reality was, why he was hiding knives. I have to be honest about that. And I can't use someone else's narrative or someone else's limitations on describing what he experienced. It's not about someone else. It's not, it's about him and what was true and honest and right for him. The story that I have today that makes sense for me cannot make any sense to him. At all. At all. Got it. That's what you mean when you're saying to people writing in, you can't tell them to do something different. No, because there's, it's, it's over. Yeah. Their story is over. Like it's, it's done. The only thing that we can do is start to rescue that part of ourselves and start to integrate them into who we are now and be able to say, oh my God, I can't believe that I thought that this nine-year-old version of me was responsible for this and this when it was just like the hell they were. I think too, a lot of people get confused and think, well, this is really going to challenge my relationship with my parents or this, this has nothing to do with your relationship with your parents. It has to do with the relationship you have with yourself. 
if your parents conditioned you to believe certain things about your childhood that aren't registering now, changing the relationship with your parents has nothing to do with you rescuing that younger version of you. That's where the work is. I don't think we realize how much these younger parts of us show up in our lives in ways that we just could not predict or understand because we've been taught, don't you talk about that. No, 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 this was the narrative. This is what happened. This is how you felt. Well, no. I also want to share with anybody listening, inner child work is hard and it's confusing, but it is so okay to hate what was done to you or your experience. It's never okay to hate the part of you who endured it. And we get confused and we hate the part of us who endured it because of what they represent. Yeah. Learning to love that part and embrace what they represent is so fucking healing and just frees us up to be like, oh my God, I don't have that part of myself living outside of my body anymore. I'm not walking around with these ex external narratives that are, are shaping so much of how I see the world. I think that that nine-year-old is long overdue for curiosity, compassion, and open space to say, whatever you need to tell me, I got you. I'll never leave. I'll never tell you it's too much. I got you. Wow. That was beautiful. Thank you. You bet. <sighs> As your friend, yeah. I've always been fascinated by the way you speak about your dad in such a matter of fact way. Oh, what have you noticed? Yeah. Tell me, tell me what you see from your, your side of the Eyeballs. You're very, fa you're very factual and it's data. Yeah. Sam, you're a really, really loved person. I describe you, I would say that, that I think of you almost like a little brother, like someone you just really want around <laughs> who doesn't say stupid shit. You know, I certainly don't agree with all your hair choices, but, <laughs> but just someone who grows on you so fast when you talk about your dad. I just think, you know, with you being a dad, as you get older, I think you're going to start to understand how, like, you're one of those people that are just instantly lovable and how that pain of your dad's decision and his, the role he played is baffling, but there's a lot of pain there. It just doesn't make sense. And I think that from the outside of Sam Lamont, we're looking and saying, do you know how much you're loved? And do you know how much, what an error he made by the decisions that he made, but also recognizing you live with that, like that's your reality. So to expect you to see how lovable you are, how important you are to so many people, when your dad failed to show up in that way, there's a lot of conflict there. But I think that you have described so much of that in a very matter of fact way without acknowledging this was a significant wound and I have every right to hurt about this as long as I want, because that was unfair. I think you're right. Yeah. And I think the the matter of fact is just a, a safe stance to take. Right. So I can, for sure, I can, I can say that any day, anytime doesn't throw me off. Right. For sure. So to go be, go beyond the facts does open me up in a way. I think that that younger version of you can't make sense of 
his pain around that. And I think those outside of you can't either, but if you could create this space for him that just says, tell me what you really wanted and what it felt like not to get it. I think a shitload of healing will take place. I think you're right. By you, by you holding that space with him. Yeah, I think so. For anyone curious what you're up to, where do you find your work? The easiest way is my website, natewrites.com. I run the inner child course called Healing the Younger You three times a year. It is this beautiful community experience. We've left the course price as low as we possibly can to still pay the people involved and also help other people pay and sponsor someone who can't afford it. But that's going to be the main way to get connected. But then if you go to my website, it directs you to all the stuff that I'm offering for survivors, a lot of free resources, as well as where to find me on social media. And I think I have to keep an eye out for when uh, I know your your groups are super booked. So I'll, I will have to follow you and maybe maybe I, I will be in the right place when the the wait list finally calms down. I don't think it ever will, but I'll I'll get in the wait list. The course will start again in April. Okay. And every Sunday you get a module with a 15 minute video and slides that go with it, a worksheet. And then you join one of the Q and A's that week and you'll hear five other people share their stories and I coach them directly. And that goes on for four weeks. The third week is, the second week is hard, it's intense. And the third week I think is a huge transformational piece, especially for parents, because it talks about how difficult doing inner child work is with parenting and, and why that's, why that conflict is so real and, and what shows up. But yeah, you guys, you know, jump on it. But Sam, I got to tell you, this is what's beautiful. People in my community pay for other people in India, Africa, Colombia to take the course. We'll probably do this. We'll probably do the same. That'd be amazing. I love you, bud. I think you're a genius and I'm so happy that, that you have gone on the journey that you've gone on and that you are a friend and mentor in my life that I can learn from. I, I think you're incredible. Same, Sam. Same. You're a joy, man. So I like to end the show the same way each time with a little twist. If there was somebody who was where you were when you were just starting the, the healing journey, I'll paint a picture. Let's say they're at a diner and the phone rings and the waiter or waitress comes up and says, hey, the phone's for you. And it's you on the other end. Just kind of talk as a fellow survivor or fellow wounded human. And just to kind of give them a little message of encouragement that maybe might replay as they go through the next 5, 10, 15 years of a journey of learning where you've learned and becoming kind of the adult that you've become today. What, what would you want them to know? If you could just send that message personally to them right now, how would you say that? So much of what you lack is because of not having the right support at the right time. It is not because you are a person lacking. Find the people who speak the language around what you speak and anchor yourself with them. But trust, you are not meant to hurt like you're hurting right now. That's not what we're meant for. Thank you so much, Nate. Loved it. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. If you love this episode or if you'd love to join our little community on Patreon, you can join it. You can be a part of the book club and be a part of the little group that we're putting together. 
who also help make this show possible. Go to patreon.com slash howtohuman, or you could write us a review on iTunes, which we're always incredibly grateful for, or you could share this episode with a friend. And if you'd like to get in contact with us or anything else that we do, go to hellohumans.co. I hope to earn your support. Thanks and have a great day. He pegged me to the wall. He got me. Yeah. He pegged me to the wall. I was like, I was like, oh, you got me. Loved it.